Uh, let's open our Bibles again uh, together uh, to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 130 this morning, so uh, head towards the back of, of that book. Um, and if you don't have your Bible this morning, that's okay. It's printed for you in your skinny bulletin uh, this morning. Uh, but while you're turning, um, I thought I had this week as I was considering this psalm. Um, y'all remember the show from the 70s, Soul Train? Um, it was a little bit before my time, but I, I was around early enough to where there were still remnants of it left in the, in the 80s. And if you remember, the, the premise of Soul Train, uh, we're talking about Soul Train at church. The, the, the purpose of, of Soul Train wasn't just you know, a place to hear music. It wasn't a place just to listen to music. That's a concert, right? There's rows of seats, you listen, you nod your head. Soul Train was a place to experience music. What do I mean? Um, there weren't chairs on the set of Soul Train, was there? It was a dance floor. There were lights. And there, there's people just, you know, going crazy, playing new songs, playing old songs, classic songs. Um, you know, people doing the train, do the crowds. You know, they would make an aisle, and, you know, couples would kind of come down and have a dance-off, right? Uh, and then after the songs were over, you know, the host would walk up to, you know, a few of the young folks and just say, you know, what did you think about that song? That's a new one. What are your thoughts? And they'd say, you know, oh, great beat. I could really dance to it. You know, it's groovy. Whatever. Uh, wh- why are we bringing this up now? Well, like Soul Train, we're, we're, we're looking at a psalm, uh, which is a song, uh, this morning. And, and quite honestly, we're, we're meant to do a little bit more than just listen to it and hear it. We're meant to experience it. Um, there are times when it's, when it's appropriate to um, sing a psalm and dance. There are times where it's appropriate to sing psalms outside. Uh, our psalm this morning is what's called a psalm of ascent. One word, ascent, which means there's 14 of them. These were songs that were being sung as people are walking from their home uh, to Jerusalem. As they are literally ascending the hill of God, they are singing these 14 psalms of ascent. So that being said this morning, um, let's do a little bit more than just listen and hear. Um, this morning should feel a little bit more like Soul Train than a concert. Um, what, is, what is singing this song? What effect does this have on all of us as believers? Um, that being said, let's go to our text together. This is Psalm 130. This is the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we do not love being spoken to. In fact, we love just the opposite. We love it when people come to us, ask us questions. We love to share our knowledge and our wisdom, um, but we know that there is a season and a time for everything. And Lord, we know that this is a time to hear from you, um, to quiet ourselves, um, not just in our minds, but in our, in our souls, in our bodies, and hear perhaps what um, we don't want to hear, but what we need to hear. Uh, and so, Spirit, again, we have wandered into 
your sweet territory. As you inspired these men long ago to write these words, would you now illumine our minds, uh, help our eyes, our hearts, our souls, and our wills to be awoken uh, by your word. Uh, Give it that supernatural element that only you can. Feed us, we pray, so that we might speak of the power uh, of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a little treasure hunter in all of us, isn't there? Um, It starts as kids. You love treasure maps. Why? Because you want to find something that is lost. You want to rediscover it. And you want to find what? Buried treasure, right? And as older older we get, that doesn't go away. We just have, you know, clever ways of masking it as adults. Um, For you, your treasure hunting might look like, you know, flea flea shopping, flea outlet malls, um, eBay, things like eBay, or consignment stores, right? You want that underpriced gem that's been sitting in someone's back closet because you want it for your front room. You're going to use it. And what happens when you discover that? You're all excited, right? That's the treasure hunter in you. There's a a couple shows on cable now these days um, that actually illustrate this as well. I think it's called Storage Wars. Basically, the concept is uh, we have you have people bidding on these um, these storage units that have been abandoned or have kind of fallen into um, debtors' hands. And so they can't see inside, but they make bids on these, on, these, on these storage units. Why? Because sometimes inside of these things there are, you know, priceless treasures, cars. Um, and then sometimes it's filled with junk. It's kind of a gamble. I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, I wanted to be a Goonie. Any kids of the 80s in here? Why? It's because I wanted to be on an adventure. I wanted to find a treasure, Right? Um, now, um, there's actually a profession. People are making their living, their livelihood, off of treasure hunting and finding. Just recently in 2012, there's a group of guys from Florida. They were looking for this, this, this sunken World War II British ship off the coast of Ireland. That was, uh, it was sunk by a, a Nazi sub, and they found it. Um, and what they found inside was over 61 tons of silver. Um, they're done. They can retire, right? They found, they found the payoff. There's a, there's a treasure hunter in all of us. We love to do that, and we love stories about it. Well, in our passage this morning, we have a treasure, and it's lost in the depths. But the treasure is not gold. It's not jewels. It's not silver. It's a person. It's a saint. It's, it's the author of, of this psalm this morning. And he's not literally in the depths. He's being figurative. And so the question is, well, what is he in the depths of? Well, the text tells us that he is dealing with a strong sense Again, he's not in the shallows of of discomfort. He is in the depths of guilt and shame. We don't know what he has done, but we know what this thing has done to him. It has left him with this this oppressive sense of culpability uh, before the Lord. And so the question for us is is this morning, uh, what do we do? What does this psalmist do? And what do we do? You know, in our own language, we we, we don't use the same words that the psalmist does. We say things like, um, I've hit rock bottom. I've just had one of those days. My, my cup is not half full. It's not half empty. There is no cup. There's no water. I'm just in the depths. Um, is there any hope for a saint or anyone who finds themselves in this similar position? Well, our, our psalmist this morning with a sigh says, yes, this God of the Scriptures, um, this, this God of all, of all Israel provides hope. Um, in his own words, what he is saying is, this God of the Scriptures is, is a, a treasure-hunting and treasure-rescuing God. 
This is what he loves to do. This is part of his business. This is part of his job description. Why do we love it so much? It's because we're image bearers too. We bear his image. Why is this timely for us this morning? Uh, For some of you, the Lord has aligned his providence up in such a way that as you read the psalm, as it was being read to you this morning, you kind of went, that is me. Maybe you've done something, maybe you're wrestling with something, and you're going, this, this guilt and this shame is, is beyond oppressive. I'm in the depths. For the rest of us, um, this is something just to keep in our heads and go, what happens? What do we do when we feel that guilt? What do we do when we feel that shame, when we're over, overwhelmed with it? What should we do? There's hope. Uh, three things I want to look at this morning uh, from this text. I want to look at the depths. In a little bit more detail, what are the depths? I want to look at this rescuer God. Who is he? Uh, and then lastly, the extraction. Okay, so the depths, the rescuer God, and the extraction. Well, we already know a little bit about the depths. Verse 1 tells us, he says, out of the depths. That is where he is. And the question is, 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 is what are these things? And, and, you know, I'm not going to repeat everything, but, you know, he's, he's, he's wrestling with this sense of guilt and shame. Verse 3 kind of signals that for us. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, right? The psalmist has marked an iniquity in his heart, and he knows he can't stand before God. And we're tempted to think when we get to verse 4. Look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, but with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. We're tempted to think, oh, oh, great. This depression is now starting to bother me. Is he ever going to get out of it? Maybe he's starting to turn the corner here in verse 4. But just to put it very succinctly, verse 4 is still in the context of the depths. He's not out yet. And so, well, then how can you speak of forgiveness? How can you talk about it? I mean, isn't that our hope? The problem with our psalmist this morning is is there's a large discrepancy between what he knows and what he feels. Let me me illustrate that uh, for us this morning. Uh, when When I finished seminary, I will never forget that day I walked in. I took my last final, and I held it in my hand, and I handed it to the the test proctor. I remember thinking, at this moment in history, I am no longer a student. I am done with school. Um, I am done with academia. I can now go and pastor. This is the moment. This marks it, right? I am finished. In my head, I knew I was done. And what I assumed was, at that moment too, I was going to feel done. I was going to have this strong sense of relief, this strong sense of excitement. But when I turned it in and I walked out of the, I walked out of the, the chapel building where I was taking this test, I kind of went, I don't, I don't feel done yet. It actually took a couple months for me to go, okay, you know, I don't have to go to class in the morning. That's nice. Um, I don't have to write a 20-page paper. That's nice. It kind of took a season of time to go, okay, now I'm starting to feel done. You see what's happening here with the psalmist? The exact same thing. He knows theologically in his mind that with the Lord there is forgiveness. But he doesn't feel it. That's not his real experience. He hasn't felt it in his bones. He knows it in his mind, but in his soul he still feels culpable. I mean, you've heard Brian explain it this way. Sometimes our our theology of sin, our understanding of our own depravity, sometimes it outweighs our understanding and our theology of forgiveness. It it uh, It gets skewed, right? We've all been there. We've all had these moments, right? Ever felt that way? And if so, what do you do with it? What do you do with, with your shame and your guilt? That one question, um, we could spend hours discussing. But can I just highlight a few things for us this morning? Some of us, when we experience our own shame and our own guilt, some of us are, 
or blame shifters, and already you're saying, not me, you just did it. We're blame shifters, and this has been a perennial problem for, for human beings. Adam did it in the garden, right? He ate from the tree, and what did he do? That's because of that woman that you put here. Who's he blaming? He's ultimately blaming God, right? What does Adam do with his guilt and shame? He, he puts it on somebody else. This is, Lord, you are culpable for this, not me. This is your fault. Some of us are stuffers. Some of us, when we experience this guilt and shame, we don't know what to do with it. And so it just kind of sits in our heart and our festers. And we just slowly kind of make friends with it and just go, I guess this is just the way life should be. I guess life is in the depths. And we just kind of eeyore our way through life with the storm cloud over our head and settle. Others of us, we get on the self-help bandwagon. We become aware of shame and guilt. We go, there's a problem. I better do something about it. So I'm going to call my accountability friends. I'm going to let them know. And I'm going to throw as many books and as many pieces of literature I can at it. I'm going to call my spouse. I'm going to call my family. We're going to nip this in the bud because it's not going to interfere with church or work or life. I'm on it. I'll take care of it. Some of us go the self-help route. I got myself into it. I'm going to get myself out of it. Self-help sometimes works in the shallows. But self-help has no power in the depths. When you're dealing with a, with, with a deep uh, sense of, of guilt and shame, self-help has no power. And so we're left begging ourselves and asking the question, well then, is there anything better? Is there any hope uh, for the saint who is in the depths? And it is, but here's the little caveat. And we're moving to the second point here. Yes, there is, but it has absolutely nothing to do with you. Because you have absolutely no power over your, over your guilt and over your shame. It's got to be done by somebody else. And who is it? And that's, that's the Lord. And so how does he do this in our heart? How does he do this in our life? He does it with, with a mercy, with what we call mercy. Um, and we're going to look at that in this next point in, in two ways. This mercy is a mercy of quality and it's a mercy of quantity. Okay, quality and quantity. First, how do you, how do you know if something is, is truly quality? Right? How do you define true quality? Well, when I was thinking about this point this week, what popped into my head was this commercial that, that Greenville shows on a regular basis. Have you seen it where it's this guy, he owns a window company in the city, and you know, on the front end he says of his commercial, we have the most dependable, top shelf, these are the best windows you can buy. Trust us. These are the best. And at the end of the commercial, he and you know, he has his wife on one side and he has his daughter on the other side. They take three windows and they put them, you know, prone, flat on the ground. And at the end of the commercial, they all step up onto him, right? And, and he's healthy. He's a big boy. And they're all kind of standing on the windows. So in one sense, he's not only just saying that they're good, but look, look how good they are. I can stand on it. Um, how do we know something's quality? It's because the same result can be repeated every time without failure, Right? That's what true quality is. And so the question, as, as we come now to the Lord's mercy, is how do we know that it's quality? Well, listen to the psalmist's words as he, as he describes the quality of this mercy. Uh, look at me at verse 4 and verse 7. He says, but with you there is forgiveness. This, this mercy uh, looks like forgiveness. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast what? There's love. And with him is plentiful what? Redemption. Listen to what the psalmist is saying. Actually, what God is saying through this psalmist is when it comes to people who are in the depths of guilt and shame, and they are the depths. They're not the shallows. We're paralyzed. When it comes to this, this is how you know this mercy is quality. Not only are these sins, are are they forgiven, but the relationship is reestablished through love. 
It's not just forgiveness. It's not just love. But there's, there's also this, this steadfast redemption. You are bought back. And to someone who is wallowing in the depths, is that not good news? Is that not the best possible news you could hear? But here's where the, uh, the cynicism kind of kicks in. Here's where we start to get a, a little sarcastic. Well, yeah, according to the psalmist. So says him. How do we know this is quality? Does the psalmist have a set of windows to stand on, to prove to us? And this is my favorite point. Check this out. We've been looking at the trees of this verse. Step back and look at the forest for a minute. Okay, we've been talking about the words, the structure. Step back for a minute. And remember, we're not talking about just hearing a song. We're talking about experiencing a song, not just in our mind, but in our heart. Kind of trace through this psalm the personal experience of the psalmist, the guy who's writing this. Where does he start? He starts in the depths of depression, right? Sin and guilt. How does it end? What is his experience in the end? Is it not the heights, the joys of full redemption before God? Doesn't he start feeling guilty and full of shame? And then by the time we get to the end of this passage, is he, is he not being more lighthearted? Are we not watching him before our very eyes just being lifted up? In mind, in body, and in soul? Where's our proof? Look at the psalmist. In, in as few as eight verses, we are watching a man being transformed from the depths of his own personal experience to the heights of joy and love and full redemption. How do we know this is quality? How do we know it works? It's, it's worked for the psalmist. Look at him. He's already out. That's quicker than you thought, isn't it? That's telling. But quality is really nothing without quantity. Um, This mercy is not just pure, um, but this mercy is also plentiful. Um, We need quantity. Consider this. Imagine you are on death's doorstep. You're lost out in the desert. And you're moments away of dying from dehydration. What good does it do you to have one drop of the purest, the cleanest water Maybe it puts Evie on your shame. What good is is quality to you there? Quality really doesn't help, does it? You need quality and what? You need quantity. It's the same. The same is true for God's mercy. We don't have just one sin to confess. We have a lifetime of sin to confess. And the question we we beg here is, okay, it's good. It's there. It can do what it says it can do. But is there enough? Now, we've looked at the nouns uh, at verse 7. Now, look uh, look at the adjectives. Look at the descriptors. Listen to what the psalmist says. Hope, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is what kind of a love? A steadfast love. And with him is what kind of redemption? It's plentiful. And he will redeem Israel from what? Some of the sins? A majority of them? He will redeem all of Israel from all of their sins. At the beginning of this passage, we are overwhelmed with the depths and the quantity of shame and guilt. And so what we're seeing happening in the life of, 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 this, of this psalmist and this saint is, is now um, this, this, shin, this shin, sin and shame that he is experiencing is now starting to be eclipsed by something greater, a measure of something better. And what is that? It's love. It's forgiveness. It's redemption. And there's plenty of it. Not only is this mercy top shelf, but there's plenty to go around. It's not just for him, it's for you, and it's for me. 
last thing I want to discuss this morning is um, the extraction. Okay, there's this mercy over here that the psalmist and that the scriptures say that the Lord has provided. And it, not only is it pure, but it's plentiful. Top shelf. Plenty to go around. How do I get that all in me? How do I embrace that from the heart? How do I exercise this mercy? I mean, again, imagine you're poisoned. What good is it to just hold the antidote? What do you need to do with that antidote? It needs to get all up in you, right? How do we look at this mercy, this pure and plentiful mercy, and how do we get it all up in us? How do we embrace it from the heart? How do we move past a knowledge of mercy to an experience of mercy, just like the psalmist? We have to do one thing, and it's two-sided. We have to cry out to the Lord. We have to cry out to the Lord. Um, let me illustrate it this way. Um, in, in the early 1950s, there was a CIA agent by the name of Robert Fulton, and he created what is now known as the Skyhook. And this thing is awesome. This is so cool. Listen to this. Here, here's the gist of what the Skyhook is. It was created because sometimes soldiers, especially like reconnaissance or special teams, would get lost um, and would get surrounded behind enemy lines. And there really wasn't a good way to get people out quick and fast and safely. So they created what was called the Skyhook. So these, these reconnaissance officers or these special officers would actually walk into enemy-occupied territory with a special bag. Inside this bag is a pretty large balloon that I don't know how they would do it, but they would fill it with helium. And if they got to the point to where they were surrounded by the enemy, they were completely out of resources, they would say, we are helpless. I'm out of ammunition. I'm out of energy. I am surrounded. I cannot get out of this by myself. They would fill this balloon with helium. Also in the bag, they had 500 feet of rope, and they would secure the rope to this balloon, so this balloon would go 500 feet up in the air. And then they would take the other end of the rope, and secure it to themselves. Okay, so you've got like this Navy SEAL kind of guy out in the middle of the wilderness attached to a balloon. Here's where it gets awesome. At this point, he would then call in for air support. And there's a special plane, I forget what it was called. And on the front of this airplane, it had this little V-shaped clamp. Uh, and, and, you know, from you know, the ground up, kind of looking up, it kind of looks like you know, antennas sticking out the front of the airplane. And it looks kind of small, but it's about a 70-degree angle and about 30 feet across from tip to tip. That's on the front of the plane. On the back of the plane, there's a cargo door that opens and shuts. And inside that cargo door is a winch. Okay? So here's what would happen. The distress call would go out. The guy who's surrounded, the guy who's helpless, would throw up the balloon. Right? He'd fill it up. He would attach it to himself. This plane would then look for the balloon on the horizon. When it found it, it would aim for it. When it got close enough, it would then go below the balloon and catch the rope between that little V on the front of the airplane. And then the, the, the little clamps on the front close. The balloon goes off into space. What happens to the soldier on the ground? He is then, by, by no stretch of the imagination, jerked from the face of the earth. Um, what's the cargo door? What's the winch for? Imagine, you know, tailing you know, behind this, this large airplane is a person. The rope is grabbed. It is put in the winch. He is cranked into the back of the airplane. The door is closed. Off they go. Sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? Like this thing exists. You, you've probably seen it in a couple movies. There's, you know, Hollywood has used it a couple different times in a couple different ways. But it exists. It has been used. It has, and it has rescued people from, um, from, from imminent death. When we're looking at our psalmist this morning, um, he's in a very similar position. He's helpless. He is surrounded by an enemy. 
He is resourceless. He has no power, no ability to do anything in and of himself to get him out of the position in which he is in. Self-help has, been, uh, has had no power. Blame-shifting doesn't work. Stuffing doesn't work. He's helpless. Except for one thing. He has one asset that you and I also have as well. What is it? It's his voice. Look what he does again in verse 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. What is he doing here? He's radioing for help. The psalmist here is throwing up his balloon saying, I'm helpless. As gifted and as skilled as I am, I have absolutely no power to get out of the situation of where I am. This guilt and this shame is that oppressive. I need help. But consider this. Imagine you are that soldier that is literally jerked off the face of the earth. The cargo door shuts. You just stare death in the face. And you are eager to show gratitude and appreciation. Where's the first place you're going to show it? Why wouldn't you congratulate yourself? You didn't do anything. You called for help. You threw up a balloon. That's about it. Who gets the, who gets the accolades? Who gets the glory? Is it not the pilot? Right? Because he's the one who's answering the distress call. He is the one that has to you know, comb the horizon. He's the one that's got to spot it. He has to, he has to fly slow enough so that when he pulls you off the face of the earth, he doesn't break your back. But he also has to fly fast enough so that he's not a sitting duck up in the air. And he's got to be precise. He can't miss you. He's got one shot. The enemy is that close to you. He's got one shot to get you. And he does. Isn't the pilot the hero here? Well, the psalmist tells us the same thing. And again, it's two-sided. We, we cry out. But who do we cry out to? We cry out to God. Eight times in these eight verses, this psalmist invokes and uses the personal name of the Lord. And that's not vain repetition. That's adoration. That's thankfulness. That's gratitude. Who is the one that gets you out of these depths of shame and guilt? It's only the Lord. But we have to radio for support. That's our job. We cry for help. And man, that is so hard to do. Especially for me. It's hard to cry for help, isn't it? Why is it hard for you? It's hard for me because if I get myself into a problem, I'm going to be the one who gets myself out of it. I want that pride and and ego. And that's a form of self-worship. And that's ugly. But that's not the way out of the depths. The way out of the depths is crying out to God. Well, the question is, why him? Why him? Why this God? Perhaps you already noticed, um, but something happens in verse 8 that doesn't happen in the first seven verses. The first seven verses are about the here and now. My immediate context, my immediate feelings, uses the present tense verb a lot. But something happens in verse 8. He goes to the future tense. Look at it with me again. And he will redeem Israel. Not did, not had, but will. Here, the psalmist in the Old Testament is pointing to something. There's an event. There's there's a point in a time that he is looking forward to, right? Because he's been instructed by God's word. Verse 5, I hope in your word. What is he hoping in? At some point in time, something is going to happen where all of the sins of all of Israel are going to be redeemed fully. Now, Spread out redemptive history in front of us. Adam and Eve on this side, where we are right now in 2014. If you had one little red pin to place anywhere on this, on this timeline of, of redemptive history, and you could say this point and no other is where we see the mercy of God most clearly, most robustly, most illustrated, what point in history would you choose? 
Where do we see God's mercy the clearest? The most extreme mercy. Scandalous mercy. Is it not Calvary? Is it not the cross? Is that not the Christian's hope? Remember, and if you don't know this, it's okay, don't be embarrassed. This is what is happening behind the scenes on Calvary, on the cross. There is a death that is being experienced. There is shame. There is guilt. And there is wrath. And it's all being poured out on who? One person. And his name is Jesus Christ. But what the saint realizes is when we look at this event in history, what he was, the psalmist was looking forward to, and what we as saints kind of look back on is... That death he was experiencing, that was our death. That trial, all of that shame, that should have been our trial. That should have been our sentence. All that ridicule, the Lord forsake, the Father forsaking Jesus, that should have been us being forsaken. What is mercy? The old school definition, it's not getting what I do deserve. And in all of redemptive history, there is not a clearer picture of that than on Calvary with Jesus Christ offering himself up for us. He's our wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer, and friend. Right? Last thought is this. Uh, Let's close here. Um, One of mine and... Paige's favorite things to do in the fall is visit a place called Skytop Orchards. Um, and a lot of you already know about it. It's a family tradition of yours, too. Um, and here's, here's what it is. It's, it's up in the mountains of all places, an orchard up in the mountains, where they have dozens of varieties of, of apples. And, you know, we've kind of moved away from an agricultural society We don't grow our own stuff anymore. So if we just, you know, are tired of Fuji apples and we want a gala apple, we just buy a different kind at the store. Um, But the cool thing about Skytop is is there's a season to pick. Come too early and they're bitter. Uh, Come too late and they're spoiled. And on their webpage they have, you know, all the different kinds of apples. Um, But they also tell you when it's prime picking time, when these these apples are going to be the ripest and when they're going to be the sweetest. And when we talk about mercy, did you know that there is a, a season for mercy in the life of of human beings. There's a season for it when it's sweetest and when it's ripest. Two characteristics of ripe mercy I want us to think about before we close this morning. One is, is the sense of helplessness, right? Just like this, this lone soldier who's, who's surrounded by the enemy and just like the psalmist who is surrounded by his, his guilt and his shame, If we don't have a strong sense of helplessness, we will never experience sweet, ripe mercy. In other words, to cry out for mercy without a strong sense of helplessness, that's not a cry for mercy. That's a cry of entitlement. In other words, I have something to bring to the table. I can barter here. I want your mercy, and here's what I'm giving you. That's not a cry for mercy. The opposite is also true. A a cry for mercy without a strong sense of, of hopefulness in God... Expecting that, that God is going to do something beyond what you ask or imagine is not, a call, is not a cry for mercy. Without it, that's a cry of cynicism and sarcasm. Yeah, there's mercy, but I, I doubt he's going to come through. I doubt he's going to do anything for me. Here's when mercy is the ripest, is when you couple your helplessness, 
hinged with a cry for mercy to God who, again, gives us more than we could ask or imagine, a hopefulness in Him that He will hear us and that He will answer us with, with a pure and a plentiful mercy. You couple those two things together and you will experience a sweet and a ripe mercy. Leave out one of those and it will be sour or it will be spoiled. If you look on the front of your bulletin, we have um, a prayer. It's in a different version, and I did that on purpose. Um, and it's Jonah's prayer from Jonah chapter 2. Why is that on the front of the bulletin this morning? If you want an illustration, of, you know, a lived, full-bodied illustration of what the psalmist is experiencing here in these eight verses, go back and read Jonah chapters 1 through 4. Jonah is not just figuratively in the depths in chapter 2, where this prayer begins. He is literally in the depths. He's in the belly of the great fish. And how does Jonah get out? What is self-help going to do you there? What is blame shifting going to do you there? What does he do? He cries out for mercy to God. I don't deserve it. I'm helpless. But with you, O Lord, the last sentence in that prayer, but with you, Lord, and you only, there is salvation. You see that, that, that twinge of hope and expectancy of the Lord? It's got both. It's got, I'm helpless. But I'm hopeful in you. Because you give and you give generously. I put that on the front this morning for for this reason too. The scripture is chock full of stories of, of people who do this exact same thing. This is the story of scripture. People who, who have who've tried the way of self. They've tried to self-help themselves out of the condition they're in. And they can't do it. There's stories full of it, and that can be our story too. Uh, And I hope that's the case. Um, May we be known at this church, and may we be known as a people who are hopeful in the Lord and what He can do for us, but at the same time, we're willing to admit that we are helpless and that in and of ourselves, we have no power to overcome this human condition, this fall. May that be said of us for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord, would you uh, attend to us now as we have sat underneath your word? Sometimes these, these truths get log-jammed up in our head, um, and they, they don't get into our emotions and our, and our behaviors. But that's your department. That's your job description. You have to move it there for us. Inspire us. Give us new resolve. Um, make us better followers, lovers of you. Um, not that we can boast in ourselves, but that we might boast in this abundant And gracious mercy that you have provided uh, for us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.